If you were not here last week, then where in the world were you? <laughs> I'm not joking. If you were not here last week, let me catch you up because you need a recap because you're in the middle of a story that's already in progress. 3,000 years ago, God's people were living like Satan's people. The story is said in the times of the judges. Everyone is doing what was right in their own eyes. But there was one man who was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In a day when religious observance took a nosedive, Elkanah doubled down on his commitment to God. Every year he took his family to Shiloh to participate in a yearly festival. This worship ritual consisted of making a sacrifice and then sitting down to a meal after. It was a meal at the tabernacle, but it was a part of the worship. Now, Elkanah had two wives. You may have questions about polygamy and if the Bible supports that. I answered all of those questions last week. Elkanah married Hannah. She was barren, so he married Peninnah. She was prolific in having children, popping babies out every nine months. They all go to this annual worship festival in Shiloh. The practice was to give portions of meat to each wife in proportion of the number of children she had produced. That way she could feed the little meat eaters. Well, the worship practice at the table was a visual reminder to Hannah that she was barren. And commentators say that Hannah, with no children, wasn't even required to attend the annual worship service at Shiloh. She could have refused to go to worship because of the visual reminder of the portions at the table. But she loved God more than children, so she went. At the table, Peninnah, with her quiver full of children, exulted over the barren mourner pointing out that it must be God's curse that she didn't have children. Elkanah tries to comfort Hannah by giving her a double scoop of beef stew. And then he said, Hannah, why do you even need a child? You have me. I am better than 10 children. <laughs> Go ahead and feel free to swoon, ladies. I said he was a good man, not a smart man. <laughs> Hannah leaves the table in a hurry. She runs a short distance to the tabernacle. She can't go in because women were not allowed in. But at the entrance, she falls and prays to God. She allowed her brokenness to drive her to God, not away from God. She couldn't get out the words. She was so distraught. But that's okay. Because God hears tears. She begged God to give her a child. And if he did, she'd make him a Nazarite. Now, this is not bargaining with God. This is not strong-arming God. This was an ancient Old Testament vow that doesn't exist for us today. Her boy would be a Nazarite. Uh, he would not cut his hair. He would not drink fermented grapes, wine. Uh, he would not touch a dead animal. She's prenatally picking his occupation. She's committing him to, for a lifelong service at the tabernacle if God so desired to give her a child. And there were lots of wonderful things she said to God. Lots of wonderful truths. But we need to see that her pain made her a theologian. No one before her is recorded using the title for God, Lord of Hosts. By the way, Eli the priest thought she was drunk. He told her to lay off the grapes. 
This is not a good chapter for men. They are swinging and striking out in every verse. Uh, Hannah left the tabernacle not knowing if God would give her a child, but knowing that God had given her peace. No matter if God would ever give her a child, she found joy. She found contentment. Her husband said, aren't I enough? No. Romance doesn't meet the deepest need of a woman. Peninnah said, you're cursed because you don't have biological children. You'll never be complete without children. No. Motherhood can't meet the deepest longings of a woman's soul. Her deepest needs could not be met in romance or motherhood. But they were met in God. The final scene revealed God in his good grace choosing to give Hannah a child. And she named him Samuel, which was a pun. She was punny. Samuel's name means God hears. So she said, I'll call him God hears because God heard. I'll call him Samuel because God Samueled. Now, today's text picks up exactly one year after last week's text. It's that time again. Time for the annual pilgrimage to Shiloh. And there are three scenes in today's text. Scene number one, Hannah pushing a stroller. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. Scene number two, Hannah singing a song. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Scene number three, Hannah resting in sovereignty. 1 Samuel 2, verse 11. Hannah pushing a stroller. Hannah singing a song. Hannah resting in sovereignty. Now, I want to put you in the moment, put you in the story, but after watching each scene unfold, I'm going to answer two questions. How does this scene apply to me? How does this scene point to Christ? Hannah pushing a stroller. How does this scene apply to me? How does this scene point to Christ? Hannah singing a song. How does this scene apply to me? How does this scene point to Christ? We're going to begin with scene number one. Hannah pushing a stroller. Notice verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. Elkanah's relationship with God has only grown in the last year. He will not allow anything to interfere with his commitment to worship. What is his motive in going to worship? God is worthy to be praised. Now it's a good time for me to inform you that under the law, the vow of the wife needed the confirmation of the husband. Numbers chapter 10, Numbers chapter 30 unpack this. He could choose to annul his wife's vow if he disagreed with it. But he didn't. Everyone is on board. Baby Samuel will be dropped off to live his life in the service of the tabernacle. He's three months old now. In verse 22 and 23, there's a conversation between Hannah and Elkanah. He's leaving for the annual trek, and he asks if she's going. She says, I'm going to wait until he's weaned. If I drop him off before he's weaned, I will have to take him back and therefore break the vow. When I do drop him off, I'm going to leave him, verse 22, in the presence of the Lord so he can dwell there forever. Elkanah agreed. All babies were breastfed in this day. There was no specially formulated foods for the babies to digest. 
Most historians believe weaning was completed around age three. It may sound a little long to you, but that was this culture. So Hannah has a bit longer with the child. Notice verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Now let's picture this scene. Verse 24 is three years after verse 23. Samuel is now three years and three months old. Elkanah has made the trip by himself for the last few years. Now it's time for the whole family to go. It's time for Samuel to go home. His true home. His forever home, as Hannah called it. He's going to the tabernacle. Hannah made a packing list a week ago. She's been checking things off one by one. List of allergies, check. His favorite blanket, check. His nighttime story scroll, check. His feety pajamas, check. His little sleeping bag, check. For this child she prayed, and for this child she will continue to pray from a distance. She's been preparing Samuel, saying things like, when you turn three, you're going home. He responds, I'm already home, Mom. No, son, you're going to your forever home, the tabernacle. But you're not going to be alone. The high priest will be there and lots of other priests as well. Will there be other boys there? Will there be only boys there, Mom? No, son, there will be maidens there, ladies they work around the tabernacle and they will be helping to care for you. Mom, will you be there? No, son. I'll visit once a year when the annual feast comes around, but I will not be there with you. Mom, it's not going to feel like home if you're not there. Mom, I'm going to miss you. I know, son. I'm going to miss you too. I will think about you every day. And I want you to think about me every day as well. I will, Mom. Mom, why is the tabernacle going to be my new home? Because, son, when I was barren, I could not have babies, and I prayed that God would give me a baby. And I took a Nazarite vow for you, that you would not touch any dead animals. That's why we make you stand far away when we sacrifice. That's why we will not let you touch the dead cattle like the other kids can do. I promised I would not cut your hair and that I would not give you wine. She's been preparing Samuel since day one to live in his new home. But she hasn't been preparing herself. She's been crying for weeks. She's dreaded this day. Oh, Kenna walks into the house and he says, Hannah, everything is packed. It's time to go. She burst into tears. Elkanah, I'm so glad that I get to keep my vow to God. But how am I going to survive without little Sammy? He hugs her and holds her tight. We will make it. We will make it together. We will take him to Shiloh together. We will drop him off together. We will come back together. 
We will cry together. We will ask God for comfort together. We will do all of this together. Elkanah calls Samuel. Hannah echoes, Sammy, it's time to go. They hear the pitter-patter of his little feet running to them. They know that's the last time they will ever hear that sound. They glance at one another as if they both knew what the other was thinking. They lift Samuel onto a little donkey and they begin walking. There's cattle pulling a wagon full of stuff and donkeys carrying people. They make it to the end of the driveway and Sammy yells, Stop! I forgot Larry the lamb. Elkanah runs back and sure enough in Samuel's now empty room lay a little stuffed lamb. Samuel loved that lamb. He couldn't sleep without that lamb. Elkanah looked around the room as if to take it all in. The cold, damp, lonely place it had become after they cleared everything out. He brings it to Samuel. Samuel rejoices. Larry the lamb, I almost forgot you. I will never forget you, Larry. We're going to our new home, Larry. You and me. We're going home. It was a long journey with everything in tow. About halfway through, Elkanah and Hannah started hearing Samuel say to his stuffed lamb, We are almost home. About every 30 minutes, he would repeat, We are almost home, Larry. Like he was comforting Larry, but like he was trying to comfort himself as well. Hannah asks, Sammy, is telling Larry the lamb we're almost home helping him? No, Mom, but I don't know what else to tell him. (laughs) Who in here would blame Hannah for saying, let's turn this chuck wagon around, we're going home? Usually a woman who had struggled so long to have a child would never give up a child once she had him. We've all made promises under duress and forgotten about them when trouble passed. But not Hannah. This was no foxhole commitment. They arrive at the annual festival. It's bustling with people. The sound of cattle mooing and sheep buying and all the sounds was almost deafening. Verse 25. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. From the language used here and the language used in verse 24 where it says a three-year-old bull, many Hebrew scholars believe it wasn't just one bull but three bulls. And I've looked at it in the Hebrew, it can go either way. Uh, I lean towards three because they brought nearly six gallons of ephah which is a little over what was required by law for three bulls. They would have one bull for a burnt offering, one for a purification offering after giving birth, and one for a peace offering. And the choice of bull, when smaller animals would have been accepted, is noteworthy. It showed Elkanah's staggering wealth, but it also showed that they brought their best. They are about to give their son to the work of God forever. Isn't that enough? She's bringing her little lamb, her little child, Elkanah and Hannah realized that even their best vows required cleansing. They roll Samuel in his little stroller over to meet Eli, the high priest. 
This takes place at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli sees this woman who says, I am the woman who was praying at this very spot four years ago, devastated by my barrenness. Do you remember me, Eli? No, no, I don't. You thought I was sauced, Eli. Ringing any bells? Anyway, I prayed for a child and promised if God would give me a child, I would make him a Nazarite and would give him to the Lord to serve in his house all of his days. Samuel looks, uh, Eli looks down and he sees a, a three-year-old boy with a, with a mullet. He's holding a stuffed lamb. He kneels down and says, hello, who is this? Well, this is Larry the Lamb, and we're moving into the tabernacle. This is our new home. It's interesting, Hannah is the only recorded woman in the Bible making a vow and then fulfilling it. She is truly a woman of faith. Let's answer these two questions. How does this scene apply to me? How does this scene point to Christ? First, how does this scene apply to me? What is the application from this scene? It's often read at baby dedications. <laughs> All right, okay, Hannah, how, how do we dedicate our children to the Lord? Just leave them at the church building. Well, don't do that. Our children's ministry workers are pleading with me not to moralize this text. They want you to pick up your children after service. We must climb the abstraction ladder to find the application. Uh, we don't have this vow today, so you can't move it straight over. What we have here is Hannah's theology of children. You don't need to just have children. You need to have a theology of children. Have you ever prayed that God would give you a job and then you allowed that job to become an idol? The same with children. You can pray that God will give you children and then turn those little children into idols. Love your children. Steward your children. But do not worship your children. Your son is not your savior. Jesus is. Hannah knows, God, if you would have given that child to me before you did, I would have been a slave to him. If your children are your trophies, then you will never rest. And they will never rest. You can't get your worth from your children. Your child doesn't define you. You are who you are in Christ. Christ defines you. By the way, parents, you need to bring up your children for the Lord. Verse 28 says, Samuel worshiped the Lord there. That is the purpose of parenting, that your children would worship God. When, um, when my mother dropped me off at college, my stepfather told me years later that she cried all the way home for eight hours. He tried to comfort her. Now, I was saying something stupid, like I'm better than 10 sons, but, but by saying, we are almost home, Peggy. How can that be home when I just left home in Knoxville? See, home wasn't a comfort. It wasn't helpful to say we are almost home. Those of you who have left a child in the hands of the Lord at college or at summer camp or at elementary school or you're doing it right now because he or she is in a dangerous profession 
armed services, law enforcement, linesmen, logging, steel workers. Those of you who have left a child in the hands of the Lord, you know what Hannah is feeling. Weaning was celebrated because it marked the transfer of the mother's raising to the father's. Instead of going to the father, however, Samuel went to the tabernacle. Eli was the stand-in father. And I just want to throw out a little wrinkle into your understanding of the priest and tabernacle. One commentator points out that it took a great deal of faith for Elkanah and Hannah to leave Samuel at the tabernacle considering the low level of spiritual life in Eli and the wicked ways of his sons. And you say, wait a minute, Kyle, he's a priest. Oh, oh, you're going to find out about this next week. (laughs) Just because someone says they speak for God doesn't mean they walk with God. They left Samuel in a jungle, but it was dressed up like a church. But the Lord was with Samuel and would preserve him from the surrounding pollution. He belonged to the Lord before he belonged to Hannah. Second question, how does this scene point to Christ? When I preach the Old Testament, I want to create a Christ-shaped vacuum, a sense of desperate need for the gospel. I am not preaching to Old Testament Israelites, although the text was first written to them. The Old Testament is B.C. and T.C., B.C., before Christ, and T.C., toward Christ. So how is this scene toward Christ? Well, Hannah left her son in a dangerous place. You may have to leave your son in a dangerous place, but don't forget that God left his son in the most dangerous place. She left her son in a tabernacle. God left his son in a stable. She left her son at age three. God left his son at day one. She left her son to fulfill a vow. God left his son to fulfill a vow. A vow that promised, I will not leave you in your sin. I will come after you. Little Samuel had a stuffed lamb. Little Jesus would become a lamb. The full and final lamb. The lamb that all the little stuffed lambs point to. The ultimate lamb. The last lamb. The lamb that would die for the sins of little Samuels and his parents. This lamb would finish what all those Old Testament festivals pointed to. This lamb would accomplish what all those sacrificial bulls couldn't. Hannah put her son on a donkey and he rode to a tabernacle. Years later, Jesus put his, God put his son on a donkey and he rode to a temple. Samuel was left in the hands of God. Jesus was forsaken by the hands of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Dear non-Christian, this is the gospel. Jesus became the lamb for you. Repent of your strivings and believe his claim. Scene number one, Hannah pushing a stroller. Scene number two, Hannah singing a song. Hannah watches Eli take Samuel by the hand and walk into the tabernacle quarters. Samuel walks a ways and then stops and looks back. His big watery eyes meet Hannah's eyes. Bye, Mommy. I love you. 
After Hannah left her baby with Eli, she could have gone off and had a good long cry. But instead, she sings. And her song has three stanzas in it. Verses 1 and 2, what God has done. Verses 3 through 8, what God is doing. Verse 9 and 10, what God will do. Hannah, the songwriter, puts her prayer to lyrics and begins in verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. She begins highly personal. Three personal pronouns. My heart, my horn, my mouth. My heart exalts in the Lord. Worship is her glad response to the goodness of God. Her horn is exalted. This is a metaphor to describe how she feels. After a rhino gores its enemy to death, he lifts high his bloody horn in victory. After Hannah's battle with barrenness and her battle with Peninnah, she could hold her head high in victory, not disgrace. My heart exalts, my horn is exalted, my mouth derides my enemies. The, the Hebrew here is literally mouth wide open, tongue sticking out, sneering at her enemy. Now that sounds a bit hateful. Like, like Hannah is saying Peninnah is her enemy. Like, like Hannah wants Peninnah to eat crow. But that's not it. That would not be consistent with her character. This is not a personal attack on Peninnah, but a personal attack on God's enemies. This is a national song. This is a tribal song for God's tribe. Remember, they had enemies all around them. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Philistines. And this song has a national ring to it. Hannah is asking the nation to sing it with her. What God did for Hannah, he will do for the whole nation of Israel. What he did for Hannah is a little foretaste, a scale model demonstration of what he will do in grand style. Verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Uh, put verse 3 into three lines. All three lines begin with there is none. Uh, there is none holy like the Lord. She affirms the otherness of God, the godness of God. He's completely different than us. Uh, he possesses his own uniqueness. There is none holy like the Lord, then there is none beside you. She's showing the incomparability of our God. He's incomparable, no one is in his class. He's transcendently separate. There is no rock like our God. God as rock is God as protector, God as refuge, God as a place of safety. Moses sang about God being a rock. Later, David would sing about God being a rock. Now, Hannah is singing about God being a rock. We sing about God being a rock in our Christian hymnody. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What is Hannah doing in verse 2? She's offering intelligent, theological, and biblically informed praise to God. What God has done, past. What God is doing, present. I like to look at Hannah's song kind of like a table of contents for the entire book of 1 Samuel. It actually anticipates the whole book. 
All these things will be worked out throughout the narrative. God in his wisdom uses this song to introduce all these themes that flow throughout the book. And she's singing over a, a dozen different works that God is doing. And verse 4 begins the extended contrast. Notice. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. See the contrast? Strong and weak. The strong become weak. The weak become strong. God will throw down the high. He will lift up the low. This is on repeat throughout the entire book of 1 Samuel. Verse 5. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Notice the contrast. Full, hungry. Barren, fertile. Seven here is a symbolic number of completeness, fullness, perfection. The one who is barren is now perfectly fruitful. Verse six. The Lord kills and brings to life. See the contrast? Dead and alive. This is a merism, meaning God holds total authority over life and death. Now, I'm not going to give away the rest of the book, but the Lord is going to kill some kids, some adult kids. Spurgeon said, those who boast of their power to live, he slays. And those who faint before him as dead, he makes alive. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Notice the contrast, poor and rich. Your status in life is not to be regarded as fixed and unchangeable. God can change anything at any moment. Verse 7 continues. He brings low and he exalts. See the contrast there? Humble and exalted. God not only exalts the humble, but he humbles the exalted. God's leash will only allow one to be arrogant for so long. This theme runs throughout 1 Samuel. God will bring high the low and bring low the high. One commentator said this is God's MO, his modus operandi. When his people are without strength and without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. See all the back and forth contrast? Strong and weak, full and hungry, barren and fertile, dead and alive, poor and rich, humble and exalted. God has a response calculated by infinite wisdom for every situation. And I like verse 8. Maybe my favorite. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Notice those two words, ash heap. The ash heap was the town dump, the town sewer. People that had no place to go often found themselves there. It was the sleeping quarters for beggars. And notice the reversal of fate. Those who sleep in the sewer will sit and dine with nobility. God is the great demoter and promoter. Hannah's song tells us of God's grace to undeserving people. This song is full of reversals. I'm going to say as I walk through 1 Samuel chapter by chapter, Hannah sang about this. I'm going to turn the page. Hannah sang about this. Turn the page. Hannah sang about this. There's going to be moments where I say, let's go back to Hannah's table of content. Yep, here it is. She said God would do this. I want you to notice 
What God has done, past. What God is doing, present. What God will do, future. Beginning in verse 9, horizons broaden and views expand. Verse 9. He, this is God, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. There is coming a day of separation. The sheep from the goats, the faithful ones from the wicked ones, the authentic from the frauds. Now there are some Christians who do not believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. But Hannah was not one of them. She's saying he will guard the feet of his saints. Friend, he will. If you're standing in the end, it's because he sustains you. None of us are going to make it by sheer muscle. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. I love that. God's enemies will be blasted out of the sky. He continues. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Verse 10 is true prophecy. She's singing of a king before there is a king. She's living in the days of the judges, but singing of a coming king. Augustine agreed this was prophecy. First Samuel starts with no king and ends with a king, just like Hannah's song. The song is a mini-me of First Samuel. It foreshadows what God will do for the nation. A king is coming, and Hannah has hope that this king will come and set the world right. Now let's answer two questions. How does this scene apply to you? How does this scene point to Christ? I'll answer the second question first this time. How does this scene point to Christ? Two ways. First, verse 10 is all in future tense. So you have to step back and say, wait a moment. Who could Hannah be talking about? Hannah's song leaves us with questions. Who is this king? When is this king coming? Some have said that David will be this king. But for the first time, this king is referred to as an anointed one. That's Messiah for us. She's seeing beyond David to another king. First Samuel introduces the idea of a messianic king. Notice the song begins and ends with a horn. First it was Hannah's horn. Now it's the king's horn. And this king will lift his bloody horn in victory while his enemies lay defeated on the battlefield. How do you explain her horn, his horn? Hannah sees her short story in God's long story. Do you? That's the first way it points to Christ. Now the second way. 1,000 years after this song was written... Another woman who just had a baby took it and reworked it and wrote her own version. Maybe you've heard of her. Her name, Mary. She was illustrious as a songwriter. Uh, Something about Hannah's song sparked her creativity, and she wrote a song. On your own time, you can compare the two. The similarities are striking. 
Mary knew Hannah's song was the seed form, and she gave birth to the fruition. Hannah's song said, the king is coming. Mary's song said, the king has come. Hannah had a little Sammy. Mary had a little lamb. How does this, this scene apply to you? Have you learned to sing in hard times? Jesus sang a hymn with his disciples before being arrested. Paul and Silas sang in prison. Singing is not a feeling, but a choice. Hannah's feelings right now, seeing her boy walk away, Hannah's feelings are a wreck. Feelings are master liars. That's why you can't be controlled by them. If Christians sang only in good times, there would be precious little singing. Feelings are important in many areas, but completely unreliable in matters of faith. One man said, the Bible wastes very little time on the way we feel. We don't sing because we feel like it. We sing because we need to remind ourselves of who God is and that he reigns over our tears. Hannah didn't leave with a son, but she did leave with a song. Scene number one, Hannah pushing a stroller. Scene number two, Hannah singing a song. Scene number three, Hannah resting in sovereignty. Verse 11. Then Elkanah went home. You may want to mark that word. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. O'Connor says, Hannah, it's, it's time to go. We need to leave Shiloh and head to Ramah. The trip back was much shorter than the trip there. Most of the stuff filling the wagon was for Samuel, and that was all left at the tabernacle. They go home with the light load. Hannah walked to Shiloh holding Samuel's hand. She came back empty-handed. I imagine she cried all the way home for eight hours, nothing but tears. Elkanah says in a moment to comfort her, we are almost home, Hannah. Home? How can this be home when I left home in Shiloh? Home wasn't a comfort to her anymore. It wasn't helpful to say we are almost home. When she was barren, Hannah had to learn that the sovereignty of God was a soft pillow to rest her head. Now that she's again childless, she is reminded that the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow to rest her head. Apparently, you need to rest on that truth more than one time in your life. Hannah arrives at home. Well, maybe I should say Hannah arrives at Ramah. And she walks into Samuel's old room. It's eerie. It's cold. It's empty. Will Hannah have any more children? What will this do to Hannah spiritually? You're going to have to wait till next week to find out. But we will answer two questions. How does this scene apply to you? How does this scene point to Christ? Again, I'm going to flip it and answer the second question first. How does this scene point to Christ? I want you to see the discernible literary architecture. 
It began last week and it ends this week. We have now completed the narrator's chiasm. Notice A, Elkanah and his family go from Ramah to Shiloh. And notice the A at the bottom. Elkanah and his family return from Shiloh to Ramah. Notice the first B, Hannah's prayer and song of misery. That is matched with the second B, Hannah's prayer and song of joy. We have two C's, Hannah and Eli in conversation, Hannah and Eli in conversation, and then in the middle, Samuel is born. In any chiasm, you have the main point in the middle. The narrator is organizing his material like this so that you will focus on the middle. The big deal of the story is the middle, the birth of Samuel. That is the thrust. That's what the narrator is, is emphasizing to you. I want to rock your biblical timeline just for a moment. I have a chronological Bible in my office. Uh, That's a Bible that puts all the verses in chronological order of when the events transpired. Samuel was living at the same time as Samson. Samuel would grow up during Samson's 20-year rule as judge. They were both Nazarites. They both came from barren mothers. In fact, when the Bible describes Samson's dad and Samuel's dad, it uses identical language and identical sentence structure. You would naturally look at Samson and think, this is going to be the one to redeem Israel. But God's rescue will come from unlikely places. Not a Samuel. Not not a Samson. But a Samuel. Samuel the baby would grow up to become the kingmaker. He would anoint Israel's first king. And in that anointing, there is a longing for another king. How does this scene apply to me? I want you to hear me, modern Hannah. Rama isn't meant to feel like home. Someone told me just last week, I've, I've lived here for seven years, and it still doesn't feel like home. See, some people aren't comforted by saying we're almost home. It's not a comfort. It's not a comfort because they lost a child in war and he's not in that bedroom anymore. It's not a comfort because everything on earth is broken in a shell of what it should be. There's a nagging feeling that you're never quite at home. You possess an ache and a longing for a home that no city, house, or spouse can seem to supply. But there is a king who diagnosed your problem. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. You're never going to feel truly at home in this world because this world isn't your home. You're exiled here. But this same king said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I return, I will bring you home. This is the home that the heart yearns for. This world is not our home. And we need to constantly be reminded of this. How can you rest in sovereignty? When you realize this world is not your home. What makes home, home? The lamb. Not Larry the lamb. Jesus the lamb. In our story today, I frequently use the phrase, we are almost home. And it was used with the intention to comfort people. But it never did. It failed to have its intended effect. 
We are almost home. It didn't help Hannah. We're almost home. It didn't help Peggy. We're almost home. That didn't help Larry the lamb. Only Jesus can turn a phrase that at one time was so painful to hear into something that is so glorious to sing. It is a very beautiful thing to see how the saints of old were accustomed to comforting one another. You know how they did it? They would look at each other in the eye and they would say, you are almost home. They realized their houses were mere temporary motels. Their real home is with Jesus. That's how you turn a phrase. That's how you gospelize a phrase. You can handle dropping a child off. Infertility. Undiagnosed health issues. Extramarital affairs. You can handle anything when you realize you're almost home. You're almost before the lamb. You're almost before the throne. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.